Are we actively recording, Shell? Okay. I just had to check because I'm going to give a shout-out this morning, something I rarely do, to one of our online listeners who, until last year or so, um, due to health issues, uh, used to be a part-year resident here in Maine, and are talking about dear uh, Inga Falcara, who's uh, one of my personal prayer warriors. And I was speaking with Inga this past week, and unfortunately she has joined the uh, dismal list of people here that we know of and care and love about here at Faith, um, diagnosed with a rare lymphoma called Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. Say that one three times fast and you might be cured. Um, And then as if that weren't enough, she also has, which is rather distinct from the lymphoma, she has uh, what's called a cold agglutinin-induced hemolytic anemia. And so that will be dealt with separately from the... uh, macroglobulinemia. So anyway, um, just wanted to bring that to your attention because I know that uh, some of you know Inga because she's just such an imposing force empowered by the Holy Spirit in her prayer life and when they're here uh, with her husband Frank visiting us as they used to be able to do. So good morning Inga and happy Mother's Day. We're in the classic Mother's Day text this morning. <clears throat> of Mark chapter 8, 34 through 38, and actually we'll just be focusing on verse 38, which is where I left off last week. If you're uh, a first-time visitor here this morning, and you see the text and you start hearing it, you're going to go, what's that got to do with Mother's Day? Exactly. So let me begin Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 34. Jesus summoned the multitude and his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Remember that Scripture interprets Scripture. I think you've probably heard that a time or two. And so we want to understand everything that we come across in the Scriptures through the lens of the whole counsel of God's Word. What does it mean to be ashamed of the Lord and his words in the midst of a sinful Culture. Does it mean that whenever Christ followers have the opportunity to proclaim Christ or Christ's truths, that they must? It doesn't seem so when we look at the whole counsel of God's Word. What did Jesus say? Well, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. In context, this is a caution to the believer to exercise discretion and wisdom, rather than just thumping one's Bible at any and every opportunity. Solomon solemnly warned in Proverbs 26.4, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. And then in the very same breath, 
He says, answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. So at least initially, keeping one's mouth closed is not necessarily indicative of being ashamed of the Savior. So we're going to have to dig into this and hopefully come away with a challenge where a challenge is necessary and with some encouragement where encouragement is necessary. So to begin, I like the syntactical connection in verse 38 between Jesus and his word. What do I mean by syntactical? It comes from the word syntax. Syntax is not 6.8% on things like alcohol and what have you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Try the veal. I'll be around all week. Sorry. Syntax, it's the drugs. Syntax, rather, is the word order in a sentence which brings forth the meaning of that particular sentence. So let's remember what God's word tells us. In John chapter 1, again, this is all, at least this part is by way of review. In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The person, Jesus, so embodied the content of God's Word that they are in certain senses interchangeable. Now, we don't want to take that too far or we run into a heresy. But in a manner of speaking, to a certain extent, they are interchangeable. And this is important, because why? It means, then, that to reject the one is to reject the other. This will make sense, I hope, as we go along. To reject the one is to reject the other. Say that to yourselves over and over when you find yourselves in a quandary, in those moments where someone plays the game of talking about their faith in Jesus and how they admire Him and how they respect Him and what a great man He was and maybe even how, maybe they even use the word love Him. And yet they categorically reject many aspects of the word that they find offensive. So say it again. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So no one can legitimately claim any sense of a saving relationship with the Savior while at the same time rejecting significant portions of His Word. Do you see? To reject the one is to reject the other. What this passage tells us in Mark is that such a person is deceived. And this passage includes a very foreboding warning. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And you may remember that I left off last week with a hard word from the Apostle Peter. In 1 Peter 4.16, Peter says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Meaning, among other things, spiritual posers 
are not going to wiggle out of being exposed for what and who they really are. Posers are not going to be able to talk their way out of what will be a perfectly accurate and just assessment of their lives and of their thoughts and of their attitudes and behaviors and actions. The things that they were able to get away with in life by doing the song and dance of acceptance before whatever a particular audience required is not going to get them off the hook with respect to the judgment of the Holy One. Whatever spiritual slogans and cliches and even humanitarian gestures by which they convince themselves they are all set with the man upstairs... They will be exposed by the one who knows all. So the first thing we can safely say about this passage that is that it is going to separate real faith from faux faith. That's F-A-U-X. It's in faux fur. Only this is faux faith. Not for ghetto faux faith, but faux faith. Anyway. We should look to another passage to back this up, lest it be cherry-picking or proof-texting. Let's look at Matthew chapter 7, beginning verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? This ought to be a rather disturbing text. The Son of Man determines that it's time for judgment. And in, in just for a pictorial sense of imagining this, picture there's this line of people, again metaphorically speaking, of the smugly spiritual waiting for their turn, confident that they've got this. They're standing in line for the judgment, but boy, they are confident they're all over this. And so we want to be sure to note that this line of people is not for irreligious people. This particular line that I'm metaphorically speaking about is not a line of blatant scoffers or even hostile critics of the faith. This is a line of people who may have attended church quite regularly. They may have been in leadership in their church. They may have organized their food pantry and the annual Walk for Equality. So they believe they're all set. And they're looking forward to this, thinking that a pat on the back is in store. And in fairness, if you didn't know the Scriptures, tell me that you wouldn't be impressed by their resume. Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? In your name. Didn't we... Cast out demons, Lord, in your name. Didn't we do many miracles, Lord, in your name? The question is not, are we impressed? The question is, is Jesus impressed? Jesus listens to their recounting their spiritual accomplishments. And he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The two key words there that are ever so clarifying, more so in the original language, are the words practice and lawlessness. The word practice there is 
grammatically speaking, is a present active participle. The significance of that means that what they mean by practice means it is not a one-time thing here and then a one-time thing here and there, but it is a continual, perpetual way of behaving and acting and living. And in the word lawlessness, it's not referring simply to violation of city law or bad parking or breaking a speed limit. The word anomia comes from ah without namos, the law, meaning the law of God. In other words, Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. You who practice lawlessness, he is speaking to those who by way of a committed lifestyle and habitual committed lifestyle to disobeying the clear teachings of the word and as have we have and as and as we have noted means a determined pattern of living contrary to the word become flesh whose name is Jesus to reject the one is to reject the other so being ashamed of Jesus and his word does not simply mean getting tongue-tied in a weak moment. More on that in a minute. Let's go back to Matthew's words in Matthew 7, 22. Therefore, in other words, since it's not the one who says they love me, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So you see, no one is going to be able to pull the wool over the eyes of the judge of the whole earth who does right. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Now, practically speaking, it's always easy to apply the word, especially the hard stuff, to they and them and those. So don't you want to know more at a, at a more personal level of what it means to be ashamed of the Lord, especially in light of the warning? I know that I do. And I honestly wish Mark gave more details here, but he doesn't. While I have already shown my hand that this doesn't mean that any Jesus follower who has ever been in an uncomfortable environment and had an opportunity to speak up for something the Lord would speak up for and didn't, that Jesus will not stick up for you when He comes back. If that is what this passage means, then I'm in trouble. And I suspect that all of you are as well. While nothing comes to mind that I could share with you as an example, I am pretty confident that here and there I have gotten awfully quiet when I could have and maybe even should have spoken up. 
I may have shied away from showing my colors when I thought it might be unpopular. But here is the difference. Is this the repeated characteristic in my life? Remember those who practice an ongoing commitment to lawlessness. (laughs) Boom! Remember in the Matthew passage, those that are going to be in for a rude awakening at the judgment are not those who have merely had a weak moment, but they are the ergodzomenoi. They are the ones who practice lawlessness, the continually disobedient ones. They are the ones whose ongoing commitment of their lives is to make the rules themselves and to live by what they think and by what they feel. Not by the clearly revealed word of the judge of the whole earth who always does right. So how do we apply a passage like this when at some time or another, Christ followers living in the world have probably been ashamed to one degree or another? Well, when I am in doubt, whenever I'm reading the Scriptures about a particular point of application of Scripture, my fallback position is to review the theological foundation of the point of the application that I have in my mind in question. Because it is one's theology that must inform one's application, that is, how they live life. Let me say that again. It is one's theology that must inform one's application. It is not one's application, that is, how one lives their life, that informs one's theology. I cannot underscore the importance of that. Maybe it's easier if I state it this way. It is the biblical revelation to us about God's character, about God's mind, and about God's ways that must inform one's convictions, values, and choices. And reversing this is the pinnacle of waywardness in the church today. Three examples to help us understand this. Again, because this is vitally important. Example number one. You've been married for X number of years, and the glow of love has been dulled by life. The glow and the spark of romance has been dulled just by routines and by boredom. Some years ago, though, you stood before God's people And you stood before God's minister, and you stood before God Himself, taking something called marriage vows. Something like, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. And then someone comes across your path, and the sparks are reignited that have long been smoldering. And you start now reasoning, that is, you start developing, not consciously, of course, 
but you start reasoning and in effect developing a new theology based on your experience and feelings, your application now of your faith. Well, God is love. God loves love. I don't love my spouse anymore. And I want to live again. God wants me to live again. God doesn't want me to be miserable. God brought this new person into my life. God wants me to be happy. Park that one for a moment. Example number two. Thirty years ago or so, when the homosexual juggernaut was just beginning, just beginning to slowly but definitely pick up steam, there was nearly universal, universal resistance from the Bible-believing church to any semblance of tolerance or acceptance, much less affirmation of what the Bible clearly renounces and condemns. And that is because the Christ follower's application of God's Word was informed by biblical theology. Meaning that one's thoughts, feelings, and decisions about homosexuality were directed by, were informed by, the living Word. But then as the years pressed on and the juggernaut grew more forceful with each small concession from society and the church, as time pressed on, the church's biblical theology was not initially ignored. It was at first challenged. And then it was criticized. And then it was tossed out altogether. Now, how did that happen? It happened because many Christ followers' theology no longer directed one's thoughts and feelings. Oh, oh, but, 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 but I, I know, I know a homosexual and, and he or she is, she is, is so nice. Nobody said they weren't. And, and, and they can't, they can't help it. God made them that way. And God is a God of love, and they just want to have what everyone else has. And they have every right to love whomever they want. God would certainly want that. Where God's Word, God's teaching on any subject in the Bible determined the church's thoughts and actions about any issue of life changed. So now it's one's thoughts and actions rewriting theology on the basis of personal experience and feelings. And I have to tell you that that is exactly what transpired all the way back to the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Example number three. God gave the direction to Eve. Genesis 2.16 The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat from it you will surely die. For Eve, this is theology 101. This is entry level. This is, this is as basic and foundational as you can get. 
This is her first class session, and it is short and sweet. Reduced to this, Eve, I am God, and you are not. I know better than you, and I will guide you through life by giving you all things pertaining to life and godliness. And you must behave accordingly for success. When the woman saw Genesis 3.6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that was Eve's assessment, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that was Eve's temptation, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, that was Eve's conclusion, she took from its fruit and ate. Eve just made herself God. And she gave also to her knuckle-headed husband, marginal reading, with her, and he ate. In each of the three examples, one's theology was informed by one's behavior. That is, one's application, instead of one's application, being informed by theology. All right. So let's get back sort of on track, not that we've been off track. So I have been ashamed, like I said, to one degree or another. I'm, I'm just, I have to believe that time and again. So what do I make of such a dire warning as what we read in verse 38? I have to take the theology that spawns this warning, and I have to now marry it with the rest of Scripture. In this case, I have to marry now the warning of 38, and everything that I've said about what it means to be, be ashamed of Jesus and of the Word, I have to now marry it also, though, with a theology of God's grace the whole counsel of God's Word. And then when I do that, I can see more clearly that this can't be a warning for the occasional stumble or that occasional weak moment that we all have. I mean, think of Peter for Pete's sake. That was clever. (laughs) Hey, aren't you... Hey, you're one of those. What? What? Who? Who? No, no, not me. Wait a minute. Your 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 accent gives you away. I think you're one of them. No. Yeah, you're one of Jesus' peeps, aren't you? I never knew him. Wow. So, who is this a warning for, and what kind of a warning is it? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. The referent to time in verse 38 is to the second coming of Jesus, where at some level Jesus will be ashamed of, again in quotes, Christ followers who have been pretenders not as a matter of slip-up or a moment of weakness, but by intention and by plan, and have not been willing to act, have not been willing to think and to believe like the one they claim to follow. 
Thinking of Peter's words in 1 Peter, shying away from suffering is not the problem. I don't believe a rational person charges headlong into torture where it's a needless choice. That's not being ashamed of the Savior. Avoiding suffering or abuse or ridicule by selling out the Savior is the problem. And when you allow your application of your faith to determine your theology, you are by definition apostate. Apostate means one who has fallen away. One great historical example with dire consequences to civilization. I take us back to Nazi Germany. The German Christian Church, now that was, that's not a description, that was their formal name, known as, like think of it as a denomination, the German Christian Church. During the days of Hitler's rise to power, was the enemy. The German Christian Church was the enemy of what was called the Confessing Church. meaning they were built on the foundation of confessing the theology of Scripture despite the cost, allowing theology to inform their application to life, specifically how they would respond to the Third Reich. The German Christian Church was busily rewriting their theology And their theology was being informed by their application of life instead of the other way around. And they began with their hymns. And they started pouring through the hymns of the church and they started expunging any and all references to Jews or anything even Jewish in nature or origin or description. And just as one example, Martin Luther's famous, A mighty fortress is our God, in verse 2. It refers to Jesus as the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of the Sabbath, a distinctly Jewish handle, if you will. And they couldn't have that. And so they wrote that right out of the hymn. It started with the hymns and then moved to their formal theology. In the words of Eric Metaxas in his dynamic, powerful, and must-read book for our day, Bonhoeffer, by the time the German Christian church was done repainting Jesus as a non-Jew, they would have the Nazarene rabbi, a goose-stepping, strudel-loving son of the Reich. And this is how people with spiritual leanings and even a veneer of Christianity are going to be stunned at the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment is real. But trying to warn someone today, and I'm talking about within the church and even to the church, 
trying to warn someone is today to be the judgmental one, the hater, the self-righteous hypocrite. Our culture has been so deceived by satanic deception that my words would no doubt be exceedingly angering and patently offensive to many, many so-called Christian ministers and church leaders today, right now, around the globe. Christian ministers who are having affairs. Prophets and priests who are pedophiles. Pastors who defy the Scriptures and the theology of the Imago Dei or the image of God in leading their flocks with their same-sex spouse in tow. Christian counselors encouraging a woman to terminate her baby. The right reverend with ornate robes celebrating the union of man to man or woman to woman. Or the heterosexuals who have been living in some kind of a self-made, self-created relationship with some of the benefits of real marriage without any of the responsibilities. And to make matters worse, when inquiring of their spiritual leader for guidance, for sincere inquiry, instead of speaking the truth in love, he smiles, giving tacit approval or worse, giving wholehearted endorsement to the marriage counterfeit that they have created disgracing the beauty of Christ's relationship to His bride, the church. Ephesians 5.20 and forward. Is it any wonder that Peter warns us, judgment will begin with the household of God? And those who were ashamed of Jesus and His word... The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. And what will that look like? I'm sorry to end on such a downer, but thus saith the Lord. Paul gives us a poignant tip-off of to what that will look like. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he will be dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Interesting juxtapositioning of those two phrases. Because now he's referring to, yes, the outright abject scoffers, critics, non-believers, but also to the posers, which is why he adds, who do not obey God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can talk all you want, but the proof is in the living. These, who are these? Those who don't know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. 
There is a day of reckoning. And those who have a sincere, genuine faith in Jesus need not fear and won't fear. But those posers who prophesied in Jesus' name say, what does that even mean? Well, if I'm a pastor, I am, in a sense, a prophet of God. And if I'm standing in my pulpit that he's put me behind, or I put myself behind, and I am teaching things contrary to the word of God, I'm still proclaiming in Jesus' name. That's happening all over the globe and at ever-increasing rates. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Think about all the signs and wonders and all the revivals and the so-called movements of God that have been an absolute farce. And for the most part have ended up by the leaders of that in scandal and shame and resignation. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Jesus says, Got the Lamb's Book of Life here. How do you spell that name again? Are you sure about that spelling? Um, not seeing it. Depart from me, for I never knew you. Can you imagine the shock? And I do not want anyone who has ever been in earshot of my teaching to be one of those who are shocked in that day. Because if you are standing before God on that day, and you will, everybody will, it's too late to change your mind, to change your thinking, to change your lives. He is a God of grace. He is a God of mercy and compassion. But the Spirit of God within the real believer will compel the real believer to learn and grow in the love and knowledge of the Lord. Can't you look back on things in your life that you used to you used to believe? Oh, I look back. Oh, my goodness. I look back to my days in high school. In sociology class, when I was on the team that was justifying abortion. And I have to say that even in that day, I, I didn't really, um, I truly didn't, was not for abortion, but it was the assignment given. It was the team I got stuck on, and so, you know, you do the best you can. Idiot. <laughs> there is a learning curve in our obedience to Scripture. Obviously, none of us have arrived, nor will any of us arrive before the Lord returns. But it is not the one who stumbles and repents and turns back to the Lord in humility. It is the Ergodzamenoi anomia, 
the one who practices lawlessness, creating their own theology. Oh, no, 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 that's not what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says. Really? Strange, mine doesn't say that at all. So the believer looks forward to the day, longs for the day of his return, but let no one be deceived. For God will not be mocked. And that which a nation, a culture, a world, or a person sows, that will he reap. To God's glory or to God's shame. Let me have you stand. Father in heaven, there is no one among us, Lord, who has not at one time or another shrunk back in any number of ways, shapes, and forms. And for that, Lord, we we are truly sorry. And yet, Lord, we look ahead by faith and we look back at what you have done in our lives and we do see progress, we do see growth, we do see us becoming more and more conformed to your image and likeness. And those stumbles becoming hopefully fewer and fewer between, far between. But we know that at the end of the day, it is only on the basis of your life on our behalf, a life of perfection, a life that absorbed the wrath of our Heavenly Father, upon yourself instead of on us. And having risen from the dead, you conquered sin and death once for all time. To that we cling. In Jesus' name, amen.